could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Never got on those, those, those boys. Good morning and welcome to Second Captain Sunday. Oh, my David here with Murph and Ken. Hi, guys. Hey there, all. I'm great, Ken. I'm actually feeling in top form today. And I can only put it down to the fact that we finally went an entire day yesterday without having to endure a Mayweather-McGregor press conference. I was beginning to forget <laughs> what that felt like. There was a moment in London on Friday night when Mayweather said, let's go to Dublin and do another one. And everybody yeah. thought, no, no, Floyd, no it's, it's okay. You've said more than enough, yeah. both of you. I think you've given, us all, you've, you've given us uh, a pretty clear picture of what's going on. Here, yeah, yeah, what we need here. Yeah. We're going to be with you every Sunday morning for the next couple of months. So I think it's important that you familiarise yourself with the rules of engagement here. Each week, we take a well-known guest from any walk of Irish life and drill down into the very essence of that person by finding out if they were ever any good at sport. I'd love to be able to tell you there's no judgement here but in fact there very much is There's a very specific yeah. element of judgement. Otherwise yeah. how would we ever find out precisely who is Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person sports person. Putting, putting his reputation on the line today and what a reputation it is is a man who's been responsible for some of the most memorable comedy sketches on Irish TV. He managed to turn an obscenely unhealthy choice of breakfast into a number one hit before launching his career in a new direction with one of the great acting performances 10 years on from that starring role in Lenny Abrahamson's Garage. We've got Pat Short in with us today, I'm delighted to say. Let's remind ourselves of the target that Pat has to hit, Murph, or at least reach for. Maeve Higgins was our first guest of the new series last week. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. My sporting history has been failing in different continents. Because, like, we had to do hurling in school, and I didn't like it then. I mean, I just, I didn't like the running, and I didn't like the um, team aspect. Mm. An aversion to physical effort and working as part of a team were just two of the factors, on which we saw as challenging yeah. in assessing Maeve's suitability to be named as Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person. She scored 72 points, which... Uh, would put her firmly how shall I put this in the bottom third <laughs> historically now she's no Lenny Abramson or indeed Finton rock bottom O'Toole uh, but she's not far off so let's see if Pat Short can get a little closer to the 85 point mark which would have gotten him on the podium last summer if you feel like getting in touch we'd love to hear from you 51551 you can tweet at second captains we got a lovely bit of correspondence after Murph's uncle Jim Carney came on last week to share his memories of the great GA armed robbery of 1977 when nearly 25,000 pounds was stolen by thieves during the Munster hurling final of that year Jim told us that Seamus Power a great Waterford hurler and a Munster councilman was in the counting room at the time and gave serious consideration to tackling the armed raiders but the presence of a nine year old boy on the scene put him off he was just a bit concerned about Mm. the safety of this little fella well here's the message from a gentleman named Ty Crowdy who says I was that nine-year-old boy. Go on. Yeah, my father, same name as me, was treasurer of the Munster Council and on the days of big matches, I used to either help count money or was a ball boy in charge of mining the schlitters. On this day, there was indeed four of us in the room, as Uncle Jim Carney said, Seamus Power, Timmy Grace, myself and my father. I remember the door opening and my father asking the robbers, were they okay? Four men came in, two of them certainly had guns. We were ordered to kneel down while they gathered the money. It was all over in a few minutes, but it did feel like an eternity. After it all settled, I remember the next match at Thurlis, the guard on duty showed me an Uzi submachine gun to reassure me there would be no robbery again it worked I was indeed reassured there's no counselling or victim impact statements back then of course I remember when I went back to school I made money telling the teachers the story one of the teachers joked I prob- Entrepreneurial, yeah, selling I, rather than telling the story I probably made more money from the robbery than the thieves themselves said some of the teachers that's superb stuff from Ty Crowdy not sure why the teachers felt they needed to pay you hmm. for this information at the time well I mean but, yeah, everyone's got to make a book I suppose maybe Ty quickly came to the 
conclusion that this story was good and all, but I mean, why is he handing it out for free, you know? <laughs> I believe our guest, Pat Short, may have been He didn't invoice us for that email, did he? Uh, not not as yet, Murph, but it's only oh, just now read out in there in the last couple of moments. I believe our guest, Pat Short, might have a bit of a memory of that dark day in Irish sport too. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes' time. But Ken, you took a quick city break during the week. We missed you in the office there. Where did you go? Paris, Milan, Berlin? Well, it's the time of year when people like to get away, maybe, you know try a city break um, mm-hmm. but I'd say to people there's no need necessarily to fly we're very lucky in Ireland to have on our on our doorstep a cultural event which I believe to be unique in the world uh, I speak of course of the 11th and 12th of July celebrations yeah. throughout Northern Ireland rebranded since 2008 as Orange Fest um, sorry uh, Orange Fest they're calling it that yeah yeah it's, it's, it's been called the Orange Fest is more inclusive than the previous sort of idea you know that it was okay. just this is part of the kind of efforts thing. to attract tourists they're trying to make a sort of a tourism so I thought how, how, how does this work as a tourist uh, sort of attraction mm-hmm. so I went up on the 11th um, uh, Belfast is dotted with these so called zones of cultural expression there must be 40 or 50 of these uh, usually area, car parks or areas of kind of wasteland with uh, bonfires of varying sizes so the one I was hanging around at mainly was one at Sandy Row which is a gigantic bonfire right. I think it was about 130 pallets tall so you're talking 60 or 70 feet uh, in height now like a Christmas tree uh, it's decorated uh, with uh, you know th- this one with several Irish flags Sinn Féin election posters a Celtic jersey Lisbon Lions flag an ISIS flag lots of those at the bonfire <laughs> they were in this season uh, and the angel at the top of the Christmas tree uh, was an EU flag uh, so so people gather from around nine or so red white and blue clothing you know Union Jack Stetsons Rangers jerseys play music very loud mostly kind of thumping dance music a few older folk songs you know Here Lies a Soldier of the UVF this sort of thing. Everyone dancing, drinking bottles of beer, book fast. Uh, only occasional chants about the IRA, the Pope, uh, and so on. I mean, this part of it, I'd say, was not unlike being in Rio de Janeiro during the World Cup, uh, except in the sort of Coronation Street-like surrounds of Sandy Row. But of course, it's not just all about the, the dancing and sort of street party. The main event is the fire. Hmm. Well, so the fire's lit at midnight, takes about 10 minutes for the whole thing to, to be consumed and to collapse. Uh, I swear the sight of this huge structure collapsing down through the flames, spilling towards the crowd, you know, f- fire and smoke billowing everywhere, is the closest thing to a vision out of hell that I've ever seen. It was awe-inspiring, really quite terrifying. The crowd loved it. Um, the crowd at this stage were being forced back by the intense heat, which is when I got to saw another, see another amazing thing, which was as the crowd, of which I was part, retreated 50 metres from the fire. You had to get that far away. Notice that there was a building a lot closer than that to the fire, which obviously couldn't retreat. Uh, and in front of this building, there were firemen standing with their back to the fire, hosing the apartment building in order to prevent it from catching fire, but obviously not doing anything about the fire, the enormous raging fire behind them that was causing the problem. It's really, uh, you see some things that you never thought you would see. Um, as to what the people in the building thought, I know what I think if I lived in that building about this uh, cultural institution, but what are the feelings of a few residents next to centuries of tradition? You know, I would say overall, Owen, if I was rating this, that the Orange Fest 12th of 11, 12th of July city break, a uh, good party atmosphere, occasionally disconcerting sectarian vibe. Overall, a touch more chaos and terror than you usually expect <laughs> on a city break, but it, certainly an adrenaline rush. 
I would give it three oranges out of five. <laughs> not necessarily a family break. Certainly not the bonfires of the 11th. Again, maybe uh, go for the marches on the 12th. If you bring yeah, the little ones. The, mar- the marches on the, on the 12th are nice. Nothing like a nice uh, nice walk. Although, do bring earplugs for the little ones. Drop us a text, 51551. Tweet at Captains. Email at rte.ie. Pat Short is coming right up. This is Second Captain Sunday. Sugar man Met a false friend On a lonely Dusty road Lost my heart When I found it It had turned to dead black hole Silver magic ships Rodriguez starts us off this morning with Sugar Man from Cold Fact and famously the soundtrack of the 2012 documentary Searching for Sugar Man. That's especially for the crew working away in Bellew Sound this morning. Our guest on Set and Captain Sunday has performed on Broadway, bestrode the Cannes Film Festival, produced a number one hit single and had his image emblazoned on the front of a postage stamp for crying out loud. It doesn't get any bigger than that. Pat Short, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I don't know what you said I did in Cannes, but it was nothing dirty. I, don't know what I, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> that was an 82 cent stamp back in 2008 yeah. 27 cent more than the Colomini stamp of the same year and Colomini can literally convert a human being into an energy pattern and beam them to another planet that so is you true. must have been happy enough <laughs> yeah. with that I was thrilled yeah my father was thrilled we were all thrilled come up from tip it was a big day out <laughs> is there actually an, an unveiling ceremony for a stamp it was actually yeah, yeah no, it was kind of a funny one because I'm of that generation where we collected stamps as kids yeah. you know what I mean and, and you got the comics and all that kind of carry on so it was a big deal to me whereas young fellas now are a lot of kids probably emailing everything is do you know what I mean yeah, stamps yeah, yeah. wouldn't be as big so there was a, a day in the GPO because it was it, the stamps were brought out to commemorate film Irish film so that's why Colomini was on one I was on one with Garage so yeah but it was great to have the face in the front of it yeah yeah, yeah. I understand Pat that you have a personal connection to one of the stories that we covered on last week's show the 19 the we're, we're calling it the Great GA Armed Robbery of 1977 oh, yeah, now you weren't, yeah, you weren't yeah. that directly involved I should obviously say I was yeah, there directly involved were we talking I, here I was yeah. on the sideline yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were you um, I was in the Brass Band in Turles and uh, we played the teams out onto the pitch that day uh, as we did in many different matches and uh, Monster Finals what did you play in the band I played second cornet Okay. Yeah, well, what is a cornet? Second cornet. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's like a trumpet got squashed. Someone heavy sat on it. It's right. it's really small, and um, it would be a typical brass band instrument. A lot of the English brass bands, and that would be so. You would have had first cornets, which is the lead, and second cornets, which is the harmonies. Um, and so I was on second cornet and uh, yeah I never forget it I was very very young I mean, maybe in, only in the band for a year or the, the first year and it was on a really hot day with the matches we'd lie out in the sideline and watch the game with the guards and everybody else kind of involved and I'll never forget that day it was, it was about I don't know, it was a good bit into the first half of the match and suddenly the cops just got up and took off and some of them ran directly across the pitch through the, through the game. So we knew there was something odd going on. It was kind of a bit exciting. But then all the talk was coming out after the match was not of the match, but it was like squad cars flying around and, and guards everywhere. and It was just, and, and crowds, of course. There was, on a Munster final, like crowds everywhere, which made it, even more difficult for the guards to get around but it was a fantastic day yeah it was great yeah we heard last week that some Gardaí moved a little bit quicker than others I think some were still some were taking it philosophically I think was the phrase used in the Irish Times and then there were others who just couldn't be dragged from the game at all (laughs) (laughs) I mean listen how many guards does it take to to catch a a thief anyway you know seven or eight I'm sure will get the job done what was it like playing on those occasions as a young lad they're a pretty big day in yeah. Thurles, those Munster final, any big GA match. I would like you, I mean, I look at, I was looking at the matches there last week and on the TV and, and just, I think the first score, Cork, 
got in the Munster final. Like, you can't beat the Cork crowd. They were always... I mean, when I was a kid, we used to always... They, they were the ones that came to Turles, because I'm from Turles, you see. Yeah. They were the, one, the crowds that came, and, and they'd just be full of colour and, and the crack with them, and to be there from all hours in the morning, even the night before. But the noise, you could hear it off the television that last week when the first score went in. It was just enormous. And I remember that first time walking out onto the pitch with the teams around, and they, they just the noise would get louder from the terraces and then the state stands or the open stand on the other side, and back around the terrace used to be roaring and screaming so it was yeah it was electrifying it was it was rock and roll <laughs> <laughs> were you rock and roll at that age were you a uh, natural performer oh no I was rock and roll absolutely yeah, had a yeah. pair of flares on me I was like a miniature Bee Gees <laughs> I'd hear down to me arse and flares even though they were gone out about four years that's it I still had them I, I think the safety of the band was a great thing um, if you didn't have a note and marching bands then of course as well you could be marching away and not playing anything and nobody knows the difference <laughs> which I think I did probably for a selection of tunes at the time <laughs> You went on to art college and yes. you hooked up with John Kenny yeah. around that time, started what would go on to be Dunbelievables. What were those early years like for you guys trying to get well, an act together? It was kind of funny. I, when I started with John first, I was kind of doing lights and sound and, and uh, working on that end of things. And I, I was a saxophone player. Um, so I kind of started with John having the crack, just playing a bit of music. And that developed into me doing sound and lights with him. And then over a period of time, I suppose maybe it was a four-year period, I started writing comedy sketches with John having the crack. It all started just loosely, just messing, kind of organically, kind of just <clears throat> getting up on stage, having a bit of crack. And then that kind of bit of crack would, be would work and we'd say oh, let's kind of make that a sketch you know so we turned it into a sketch and that's kind of how it happened and then we just so we were kind of potting around the country doing nightclubs bars colleges all that kind of stuff there was no comedy scene in the country at the time not like the comedy club in Dublin hadn't started up the uh, comedy clubs in Galway Cork and all those places hadn't really happened at that time so we were kind so, of so yeah where, the, were, where were you playing then where were the gigs the likes of the, the what the Glen Eagle in Killarney was, was, was it Glen Eagle no not the Glen Eagle the other one um, there was a big hall where the band would play and someone like Johnny Logan would be on in there and then you had a smaller disco room and then you had what they called a supper lounge which is basically <laughs> it was in order for them to keep the bar open they had to have chicken and chips right and that's yeah, where yeah. we were <laughs> so no one gave a shite what they were doing they were really just eating their chicken and chips and heading on so we were kind of in a place like that in Banna Beach and all those kind of places around the country <clears throat> and up in Mayo and so they were kind of fairly awful gigs, to be honest with you. But it was still a circuit, if you know what I mean. And then there was some cool bars and places like Tully's and Carlo and places like that, where Christy Moore was playing and other acts like that and, and uh, Luca Bloom and that. And we were on on a, on a Thursday night or Saturday night. And they were kind of more cooler gigs to be doing. And we were just kind of creating and inventing stuff and having a bit of fun. And I think out of that came the characters of the Unbelievables, those type of characters, you know, that we kind of became famous for. And also we kind of used the room differently and used to come in and out through all the, you know, the back door, come through, the, we'd have a character come through in from behind the bar or something like that, you know what I mean? So it was kind of... Not not stuff that was being done. No, and it was kind of mixing theatri- theatrics with comedy in a space that didn't, wasn't a theatre, if you know what I mean. So we eventually got to a stage where we found it very hard to, to kind of perform and we just found too many restrictions and we wanted to do certain things. For instance, you couldn't get a blackout, you know, to, to create a lighting change and all that kind of stuff. So you were kind of constantly fighting with all that kind of those issues and problems and entrances and exits and, and backstages. Some places there'd be none to be just a wall. So we eventually decided to go into theatre and uh, there was a kind of an emerging 
theatre scene at the time. Uh, there was the Bale Buck in Dublin was one of the first pub theatres that was kind of, that's gone now, it was just there near, near Ranala. And that was a kind of a stomping ground for us. And out of that came Clears and Kilkenny. And uh, I think Joe had the theatre below in Listowel and the church and there was a few more around the country. Not too many. I think it was later on in the 90s that they kind of, exploded all over the country every local drama group managed to get some funding or something the place was awash with money and the, the country as a result has a great touring circuit of theatres but back in those days it wasn't as easy you know yeah um, but it's kind of interesting to hear you describe that, that the lack of convention made you quite unconventional as, yeah as a result yeah. I think it did it, it kind of almost moulded what we did we became famous for coming in through the crowd and everything else but that was because there was no entrance there was no backstage <laughs> if you the fourth to do wall didn't exist for you to break yeah, yeah one yeah. of us would yeah. still get up on stage and do something the other fellow would scurry in behind the bar and change in with the keg room and come out <laughs> yeah. from behind the counter so it, it it was a bore from necessity more than anything else it's, it's yeah. kind of interesting that you say like there wasn't any comedy scene here I mean it's not as though you know the idea of stand up comedy I'm sure people, people that knew like Billy Connolly and yeah. you know, there was a, there was a lot of big sort of seventies you know stand ups and so on in, in the UK. How come it didn't really seem to it, take they, they they see they had workingmen's clubs over in England and all those kind of and jonglers and all those places and stand up bars and that. We didn't. I mean, there, there, there was uh, Brendan Grace was touring, Neil Tobin was touring doing comedy, and there was then you had the Bramer Rooms in Dublin and you had the Jury's uh, Cabaret, which was um, Novi Ginnity and and, and and other stand up comedians. There was quite a, there was quite a few stand-ups I'm not saying there was no comedy in Ireland but there was no circuit as we'd know it today I think after Father Ted it became very popular over here in Ireland as well because uh, Father Ted had all the new comedians Tommy Tiernan um, kind of emerged around the Father Ted time and that and you had kind of a movement of comedy starting up and then Father Ted kind of came along and shot it onto the global stage if you know what I mean Am I right in saying Pat that big things started happening for you abroad maybe quicker than they did at home going yeah. up to New York and around Europe instead of touring the thing yeah we were we were touring away uh, kind of small theatres but we couldn't get a venue in Dublin at all uh, they just didn't want to know about two uh, rural comedians <laughs> writing their own material um, you know that wasn't kind of in theatres so that they did, they, it was very very hard for us to get so we started looking towards New York and we got a promoter to hear to put us in touch with some people out there and we started working and, was, and we got great support out in America and we started doing the Irish Arts Centre in Western 51st Street and that sold out for us and then we came back for another run and we were doing a three and four month run selling out there and getting great reviews and we got yeah, like some of the big networks were coming down to see us and stuff so it was really really exciting and then we got a tour across America the Natural History Theatres put us on um, through actually what you call them was a great helped us there was Frank McCourt um, and Maliki McCourt they were they had done a play just before we were out there called A Couple of Blackguards which was the precursor to Angela's Ashes and uh, that was the, their story as such and it was a huge hit over in America and as a result they had great kudos well they had anyway Maliki had from his acting days in New York I mean they, so they they kind of represented us in with a few phone calls and wanting another and that got us on the tour across uh, mid-America and uh, yeah we we, we were going to we, we were going to go out there nearly full time we got all got our green cards and everything sorted out myself and John and, and Marge and Caroline and then uh, Margie got pregnant, I think, at the time, and they were kind of keen on staying at home, even though in our own heads we had kind of thought about moving out to America. And then we got a shot at the Late Late Show, 
and it was the first shot at it. So we, we took that and after that, everything just went crazy. You achieved an insane level of fame once Dumbleebles took off, selling yeah. out Vicker Street for 14. It's, hard, it's almost hard to quantify now how yeah. how big that all got. 14 weeks there, all the video sales you had, Jumbo Breakfast Roll, of That's course, which really follows good. you to this day, sold more records than Hips Don't Lie by Shakira, Murph. <laughs> <laughs> Comfortably more. That's one for the, uh, for the obituary, yeah. yeah. Apparently so. <laughs> old pub quiz at home now, let me slap it in. <laughs> <laughs> and then 10 years ago Your hips don't lie either of course <laughs> you eat it, enough treats telling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> treats telling hips 10 years ago you changed tack slightly mm. by starring in Garage Lenny Abrams' yeah, yeah. Garage that was 2007 how uh, you know, I've heard a lot about that performance changing the perception of you from a uh, comic to a serious actor I don't know if you agree with that how did how did that movie and your role in it change your own perception of yourself and your work I didn't really change my own perception t- t- too much, uh, you know, other than it was it, it was interesting to see how other people perceive me, if you understand what I'm saying. I remember, uh, look, I heard it from other uh, directors who were saying that they had met or s- met directors at the time at screenings of it going, oh, my God, I, you know, I would never have thought Lenny would have picked Pat Short to do that role and absolutely perfect choice and didn't realise he, he was a, a straight actor, you know what I mean? But of course, that's what happens with, with you know, with comedy in particular. People, you get pigeonholed, and that's why over here we, funny enough, over here we do a lot of comedy. Actors will do a lot of straight roles, whereas in America you wouldn't hear of that. Very, very rare. It's just you either do one or the other. Um, and it's, you know, I'd worked with Lenny prior to that, so we, we'd done a couple of commercials together and, and things down through the years, and uh, that's how we got to know each other. And I think he. I remember he was at the time saying it was, it was the physical aspect of the character that that's what made him think of me. He, he said that even when you were sitting around sometimes on these previous projects you'd work on that you were you sometimes projected a sort of I don't know if pathos is the word that he used but you projected something that he felt he could use in his movie. Did did you exp- did you realize that yourself? I was probably very tired and pissed <laughs> off, <laughs> thinking I'm not getting paid enough for this. And he, he was probably caught my eye at that time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I mean obviously he would have been seeing that in in you know I, I you know I I, I I don't know I I I suppose maybe sometimes when you're doing we done we we had done some comic roles before and I. Comedy is quite serious, you know, in the sense of hitting timing and all that kind of stuff and everything. So you do tend to, in between takes, focus on what you're at and trying to work out where what where does that go wrong? What do we do? How do you, you know what I mean? And you can't keep up the whole time. You've got to be, you got to kind of conserve your energy a little bit. And maybe maybe that's probably those moments of what he what he he saw and and maybe definitely would have been Josie's traits. There, there was Josie a lot, the yeah. Character, I'm talking about. There was a lot of that there. Um, mm. What was your reaction when you first saw the script and realised how much of that kind of acting, but well, I say the script, there wasn't, yeah, no, no. There wasn't that, that, much, there wasn't that many words. <laughs> Mark O'Halloran is a fantastic writer, but I, that's the one thing I said to him innocently one day, I said, you know, script, there wasn't much script there. <laughs> but of course it was all there. I mean, it was all there, but it's just, there was a lot of um, moments on the on screen where you were performing and not um uh, and not talking, you know, so that that demanded performance, which is what you know, which which is what any you know, it, it is it can be tricky at times, you know what I mean? But uh, it worked out fantastic. Um, can you remember how you went about learning that role, and how how did you? Well, we workshop fi- physically. Act. Seth and Lenny workshop yeah. together. We we went away for a few days, and and uh, he came down to me in Limerick, and we we kind of. There were there were tough days now. It's amazing when you do something like that. How draining it is, just walking around, <laughs> saying nothing, and you know, and 
wondering, do we have it? Do you not have it? But Lenny's watching it, of course, all the time, and, and uh, he knew we, we, we had it. And, and it was funny, we did rehearsals before the film shoot then, and for a couple of weeks, and then we landed on set and everything changed. <laughs> Well, I felt it did. I don't know. Um, so you know, it was kind of one of those ones. But it was it was a, a fantastic experience. I mean, I have to say, working with Lenny was was incredible. And and uh, he's a serious guy, you know. And, and and obviously, that came out in the end, you know. Josie was awaiting a hip operation. Yeah, that movie. And I did read somewhere that you went to great lengths, Daniel Day Lewis style at lengths to. <laughs> To go and research that role. Just okay, your own. No, sorry, no. <laughs> not quite that. No, no, there was a neighbour of mine who had bad hips. <laughs> I used to follow him up and down to the shop, <laughs> and uh, he had a fantastic walk, and it really worked out really well. And, and that's the walk I gave Josie, which was really subtle. But, and I only found out afterwards this guy was waiting for two hips to be done, right. not just one. And that's why kind of a boating type of uh, movement was there, because if you've one, you're kind of a bit of a limp. But when you have two, you have two limps. <laughs> so you even. Evenly swing across, so there's interesting things that happen. Yeah, no, that, that was the really the research I did with the, with that one. The movie famously exploded when it was screened at the Cannes Festival. What was that experience like for you? I was excited to be in Cannes to start with because I like it was great to be there, and I'd never been there before or for any at any major film festival. So it was kind of a little bit after I came back, I realised how amazing it was. If you understand what I'm saying, because I didn't know what to expect and. I would imagine you can go out there with a film that isn't successful and it'd be a very different experience. <laughs> but we landed uh, we landed there on the Friday night. I was filming Killing the Scully at the time, so we flew out Friday evening after shoot and landed in, in Cannes and it was like, went for dinner. And I remember the, there, was, there was a press screening the next morning and I hadn't seen the film and we shot about six different endings to it. So I didn't know what, what ending was on what they were wow. using. Yeah, well, you know, there, there was five or six different ideas that Lenny had and I never saw the final edit, so I didn't know what the ending was like. So I said, look, before the premiere tomorrow, because it was, I think after the press conference, there was a, there was going to, uh, sorry, after the screening, the press screening, there was a press conference in a marquee next to it. So I said, look, I, I really, I prefer to see the film before I ask <laughs> questions about it, because I'm not quite sure what, he had, you know, even though he kind of told me, I wasn't sure how it was looking. So they didn't want me to go to the press screening at all, because it's like a thousand seater theatre. And apparently in Cannes, it's famous for them getting up and walking around and, you know, now they they'll boo at a premiere and they'll make their make it vocally known they don't like it. Right. But in a press, it's common that because people are going watching ten different films that day, they might get in to see a bit of this film and then they'll move on to another film and another theatre and all that kind of thing. So I said, look, I don't care. Just sneak me in the back, get me in. So they got me into a fire exit up to the kitchens and into a seat. It was big, huge. It was in a hotel. It's big uh, cinema, and uh, nobody got up. Nobody moved. It was incredible. And they, they stand an ovation at the press screening and apparently that is unheard of. So then when I was leaving, of course, they all saw me. <laughs> it was a big, it's him, it's him. <laughs> it's like, it's Jesus. <laughs> so uh, they kind of ushered me out really quickly. And that was the first indication, gosh, this, this is really big, you know. So then the press conference was absolutely mobbed uh, in a marquee next door and we were, on the, we were on with an interpreter on the stage. And it was weird, you know, it was like I'd never done anything like that before and so it was quite weird yeah and that's interesting that like over the course of those two hours you know so it's not kind of like it comes in with word of mouth and people are oh I, you know, I'm hoping to see this film and you know I hear the lead performer is great and it's basically people walk in okay so this is you know movie three of ten of that I'm going to yeah. see yeah. and at the end of that what is yeah. it 85 minutes yeah. probably 90 minutes at the end of that 90 minutes all of a sudden you're 
know, you're yeah. a star. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, and it was, the, it was, it was, a, it was, it was the biggest buzz around. Can was about uh, in the about the film and, and at the same weekend you two were playing down at the, on the, the so it was a really big buzz for the Irish being Irish after that weekend because everyone wanted to go and see you two because it was a free concert they were doing their film was just being launched out there and then and then uh, Garage was was huge reaction to it so it was great and then we were up in rooftops and all over the place doing doing interviews and you were being dragged and I remember uh, reading before. Harvey Keitel saying that, you know, that the one thing about can not to be disillusioned, that when you're finished with you, doing an interview with you, they'll just drop you. And that's it. <laughs> like, I was reading if Harvey Keitel says that. So sure enough, the last interview, I was going back to the hotel and did my last interview. They said, thanks, Pat, goodbye. I go, no, I need to get back to the hotel because uh, my flight's coming in like less than an hour and I just hung on to do this last interview. Yeah, if you go up the street, turn right. I'm like, no, I'm not going to go up the yeah, street. You need the 17 bus there. Uh, <laughs> so I, I got Mr. really, Short. and Harry Cartel came into my head. Yeah. <laughs> should have listened to so him. So I, st- I, I stuck it out and I got really taken and they got me a car and drove me back. <laughs> Another glamorous spot you've done some work on is Broadway. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah, the yeah. Cripple of Inish Man uh, a couple of years back. Is that as glamorous as we would... It is. It's, it is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, is, it, it is, it is, it is. Like, I mean, again, we were we, we had just done the West End before that and that was kind of fairly hip and all the rest. And then we got a chance to do Broadway. And, I, and again, I think when you're naive enough like I was, I didn't really know what to expect out of it, do you know what I mean? But we were, it was coming up to the Tonys and, of course, we, the reason we were there was because the guys were, who had put the show together were thought it was good potential for Tonys and as it turned out we were the most nominated show on Broadway that year uh, for Tonys we didn't win at but we, we, it was great to be nominated that much mm. and uh, yeah it's just like you're, you're working with Daniel Ratcliffe of course everybody wants to come in and meet him you know so you've got this just list of A stars coming in and um, you God. nearly killed John Hamm my daughter did not me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Dan was doing a sh- Dan was doing um, a TV series with with John Hamm. So when we were finished up, I think they were shooting it actually in the last few weeks while we were running there. And John Hamm used to pop in the odd night and, and they go out for drinks or whatever. But this night, um, my daughters had arrived over from Ireland and uh, they were waiting in my dressing room for when I came off stage. So I came off stage, got changed, and uh, we were coming down the stairs with the suitcases. And my youngest daughter uh, let the case fly. It was real narrow stairs, and the case took off and just at the bottom the door swung open and John Hamm was coming in <laughs> and he, face. He, yeah, <laughs> he got hit square on with a suitcase but he was, he was he was a gentleman he picked it up and came back to her <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood was hosting those oh, he uh, was Tony the, Awards the Tony Awards yeah or at least at least presenting yeah, some he, of the prizes he, yeah he, he was the, he was there for one of the awards but yes he called us the cripple of Irish man <laughs> <laughs> Which got a good laugh. Did anybody corner. correct him or was it just sort of... Oh, uh, okay, no, no, no. E- easy mistake. Yeah. Clint Eastwood, leave him off. He'd shoot you. He could have called us worse. Yeah, we still would have left him alone. Well, listen, Pat, it's been wonderful listening to you share some of your memories of a fairly unique career. Our job now is to explore your achievements on the sporting fields oh, of Turles and beyond. Already in 2017, you've managed to milk three times as much milk from a cow during Ortiz's big week in the park <laughs> than any of the other celebrity contestants. So there's, you're pretty happy with that performance, I assume. I was well happy with yeah. it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Your celebrations were actually hilarious. <laughs> carrying around this golden udder trophy that... Uh, and they wouldn't give it to me in the end. They oh, had right. yeah. Al Porter. Yeah, Al <laughs> Porter. Duly that one. Al Porter and Vogue Williams never stood a chance, Mert. No. <laughs> got involved there. So there's no doubt you're a competitive animal. Just how yes. competitive, we're going to find out next on Second Captain Sunday as we spend some time in this sporting life of Pat Short. RTE Radio 1 Ladies 
The Bullock was a great fit of music for my own The Bullock went out of their county. No fight. But the Bullock had his leg beaten off in the small parallelogram in the fight in the first in So they need our one. No fighting. But the Bullock played away with the stump and the half. That's the type of men we have in the Angoolian. No fighting. Shakira, Shakira. They're rock solid. They both need to get out here. They're sticking with your boy. He's a mouth. He's no relationship. There's every blow up here for you. Brilliant job. Oh, baby, when you talk. Yes, that is a mix of Shakira and Unbelievables on I, Sunday morning on RT Radio. And it really works It as really well. does, yeah. If you're just tuning in and missed the first part of the show, that might be a little bit confusing. No, you don't explain it on. Yeah, you don't need any excuse to play if so like. This is Second Captain Sunday with Owen, Ken and Murph. You can text us on 51551, tweet at Second Captains. To the producers of Big Week on the Farm, by the way, if you're listening, Pat Short is our guest here this morning and he wants that golden udder. It's rightfully his, so let's put this right before the end of the show, please. Pat, the characters that we heard in that clip will be familiar to a lot of people from your Dumbelievables days with John Kenny, the schoolmaster, and the amazing Timmy Ryan, the hurling coach. How much of what you saw in the GAA ended up feeding into the work you did? It seemed like pretty fertile ground for your comedy. Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, a lot of the, the comedy we did, the characters we, we Seth and John had in the past were kind of based around our own personal experiences of characters. And like, you can't avoid it. We both come from the country, so you can't avoid the GAA, the church, for example, even though that's kind of drifting away a bit now. But when I was young, the church was like most dominant part of of the town of Turles anyway, definitely. And of course, the GA with everything that was going on around it. So you couldn't avoid it. Yeah, I mean, there was the characters and the energy and the passion. And Were there specific characters? Were there specific people that you thought, that's the guy I'm, I'm doing here? <laughs> and, and did anyone ever figure out? <laughs> <laughs> no, you see, that's the funny. Everyone comes along and says, oh gosh, I know him. I knew a fellow like yeah, him. Yeah. Everyone, like, it's yeah, you, buddy. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I know she was a mix of John and myself. John knew characters. And, and that were like I'm not going to mention any names but yeah it was one or two characters that, and I got to know through John that he knew with the GA and of course I knew characters from Turles and Tipperary in the GA kind of area of things but it was like you know it's any dressing room that passion that's roaring and shouting mm-hmm. and, you know and, and absolute craziness and we just exaggerated it onto another level but it's still you know Often people said to us, you know, they could, they could, you know, I remember doing this character once at doing swimming classes in the local hall, and you know, of course, you know, in the, in the local hall in the parish, and someone came to me from outside clear and says, "Yeah, we used to have swimming classes in the hall." You're joking me. You literally couldn't make it up. No, yeah. no, there was nothing too wild uh, that hadn't already probably been done yeah, in multiple places. Out. Absolutely. Yeah. How close were you to that hurling scene? Did you ever? play? I, uh, I I played a little bit of hurling in school and I got sent off once uh, as an umpire. <laughs> <laughs> I was I, I just one of those days when you were walking back after lunch and a teacher shouts you, you short, go behind the line, there's a schools match. Yeah, so I have that. Visiting Turles. Yeah. I said, well, what, you should do that. And I really didn't know much about hurling. But what I didn't realise is I didn't have glasses and I needed glasses. <laughs> so when the ball went up, I couldn't see it in the clouds <laughs> or wherever it's gone. So I did a couple of these wides and there was nearly, I was nearly attacked and beaten so I got yeah I got kicked off hold on for incorrectly calling dismissed for incompetence rather than Um, sent off first umpire in the history of the GA to be dismissed for incompetence I think it's it's for random I mean you see it so much every Sunday (laughs) you can just say what did I do wrong well you have contributed in more recent times we chatted to Owen Kelly one of Tip's greatest hurlers captain in 2010 and he told us a little story that you might have been I don't give you all the credit but at least partially involved in that 2010 All-Ireland they couldn't have done it without exactly yeah, well, <laughs> well it, it wasn't so much a 
chat, but it was a bit of crack one night up in, in Carlton House, I think it was. Yeah. Um, uh, I was I was asked to come up and entertain the boys. And uh, so I, did, I brought a good friend of mine up from uh, from around the Kilkenny area and I put a Kilkenny jersey on him and I had a tip jersey and I did a lot of comedy. And every time I got something <laughs> wrong, I kicked him up the arse <laughs> to motivate the lads. <laughs> but oh, the way Owen was saying it to me was basically... That he, uh, it was the Friday or Saturday That's night right, before yeah. the 2010 so it was like eight days out from the Ireland final yeah. and after a day of really intensive training and sort of work with tactics and stuff like that they were sitting there thinking right okay so they'd probably be like oh you know Joe Schmidt or Paul O'Connell or someone like that you know one of these like massive Mickey yeah. Hart something like that you know, motivators big, yeah big figures that are sport <laughs> to motivate us before we try to beat Kilkenny and out you walk in a yeah, jersey that's right yeah, and he said it was brilliant Absolutely uh, we'd amazing, great, yeah. it was great crack it was Liam Sheedy uh, asked me to come up and do it you know but uh, well sure Liam is a gas man you know he's he's uh, sure he's passionate about you know and and after I'd done the, the spot I hope he doesn't mind me <laughs> <laughs> After I'd done this, but you know, I, uh, you, you know, as an entertainer, you have your exit music. Thank you very much. Yeah. Come back out here. Come out here. <laughs> huh? I said, come out here. So I had to come out. And they grabbed me by the air. This man here is after doing this for ye and these are the likes of the supporters and a big dressing room speech went on I was afraid of me shite standing <laughs> it was brilliant uh, but he was just I, I could see how he motivated the team yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. that time so what sports did you play as a kid I did a bit of hurling and I just taught 15 lads running at me with Hurleys and a few more fellas on our own team probably trying to few skills into me as well and that was not for me so um, I did running um I did a good bit of running because I was good at running away from <laughs> little hurlies and boxing. Yeah, I, I like boxing yeah. actually. So I, the individual. Yeah, put me in a ring with one fella and I'll have a good goal. <laughs> <laughs> Not fifteen lads, you know. Uh, so I did. Yeah, I, I, I boxed. Um, I got through the counties and got on to the Munster finals, which was disaster. Go on. Uh, down in Cork. I think it was the Sunnyside Club in Cork. Well, I I, I'll stop you for a second, though. County champion. That's not bad. I don't know that. Well, it was a walkover. <laughs> <laughs> you think I didn't turn home? Why, why would you tell us that? I mean, we're hardly going to go to the record books. I know. Hey, forget that. Forget we heard well, that. Well, I did. Though. I fought a lot of County fights. I, I, did, I actually did quite well. Um, but when I got to the Munster... I was fighting a guy who had just come back from fighting in Wales for Ireland, you know, so mm-hmm. I should have should have known that was you know what was what was gonna happen next. So I came out in the ring, we were always taught to kinda of take over the ring and and you dominate the centre of the ring. So go hell for letter at the other guy and then they've got to work all the way around you, you know, mm. so you wear them out. Solid, in yeah, solid t- good good thinking. So I came flaking out and I don't think your man expected it. And I hit him a good few flakes and knocked him to the ground. I thought, This is it, yeah. This I'm in there, yeah, loving this. <laughs> so he they check him and he gets up. And it was almost as if the light went on in his head, you know, because he he started this weird kind of um, like with his fists moving them around like that. Not normally you'd hold your your right hand if you're you know whatever to your jaw and your left hand you'd kind of you jab with it. But he was like swinging him mad. And then I I don't remember much after that. And I do remember I remember, <laughs> this is embarrassing. I do remember chasing him then. And gone after him, and 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 he was legging it away from me. I'm thinking, I have him now. And then I realised I only got one glove on. <laughs> I was going, what's going on here? And then I realised the doctor was chasing after me as well. <laughs> so I'm my trainer. So what had happened was obviously I was knocked out, but still standing up. And they were taking the glove off, and the towel was thrown in, and I kind of came to again for a second. Thought, I'm going to go after him now. <laughs> and I ran around the ring after him, and then they 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 you know calmed me down. And he was a lovely guy actually. He came up to the dressing room after to see how I was. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it was uh, a little bit embarrassing. Yeah. Oh, I, I must say, by the way, Pat's been doing a lot of visuals here for <laughs> us, and your your form is good. You've got a, a I, nice <laughs> defensive style. I'm hard to hit, I would say. As a well, oh, no, that guy I, hit you, obviously, but no, I wasn't a bad boxer actually. I, okay. I really enjoyed it, and we and I think a lot of it when we were uh, training and sparring, uh, we, we there wasn't too many guys around my age and weight so we're all a bit older and bigger so mm. you were constantly in with heavier guys that were just pummeling through your guard you know what did you, how did you find that enjoyable what did you like about that well it got you set up for the, the tournament fights then yeah. they, they were easy you know they weren't they weren't too un, until they met your man they were, you know what I mean you, you kind of you could take a good hiding like you know basically a good pattern if that makes sense when did you give that up was it after uh, that or did after you go I got on knocked out yeah, I said that's <laughs> enough for that for me now <laughs> that's, a fair, that's a fair exclamation point surely surely cycling is better than this <laughs> or if I don't want to tell you how to do your job but if Pat Short doesn't score highly here I think I might have to quit on the spot let us now rank this sporting life of Pat Short you don't understand I could have had class we don't have stars in this game Mrs Weaver what do you have then people like me I could have been a contender I could have been somebody I'll hand you over now to the this sporting life grand marshal our independent adjudicator for 2017 Kieran Murphy uh, thank you, Brother Owen. As you may now be aware, every week we judge our special guest in a number of key categories. Your own personal sporting career highlight, which I think we've just heard all around, sports ability, sundry other factors to which only I am privy uh, to see if uh, you can be crowned Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person for 2017. Last week we saw Maeve Higgins make a reasonably strong start, mostly on the back of a rather stunning announcement of her admiration for Gennady Golovkin, knockout artist of the middleweight division. Uh, we stay in the boxing round for your overall sports highlight, uh, Pat, which which is an absolute classic of the genre. Uh, you're losing absolutely no points with me as a result of your brave but ultimately futile attempts to secure an instant rematch against your useful opponent all those years ago on the basis of you having no recollection of losing the first uh, the bed in the first place. So uh, anyone who's able to skewer the world of GA as expertly as you've been telling us about during your career is not just a talker but a listener. So a very strong showing there. So just one more thing. I, f- I feel like I have, I have enough here. But uh, just to help clarify my thinking on this, uh, Pat Short, movie star, in five words or less, what is the greatest sports movie ever made? Oh, uh, there's two words gone already. Uh, <laughs> Tinkup. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. <laughs> Rocky Three. Uh, uh, sorry about that. We really never saw him yeah, coming back. Tough, I mean, it's a difficult one to answer. From uh, Clubber Lang incorrect. all those years ago. So I'm going to have to deduct half your points for that. <laughs> but it's still a very fine showing indeed. Because from the miss of all that, I can now reveal a very fine score of 87 points Ooh, out of yeah. 100. For our new oh, leader, about Pat right. Short, this has been oh your sporting life, Pat. Are you happy Thank you. That, I'm Pat? very, I'm delighted. I feel uh, reminiscent of uh, that award on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the golden udder. The golden udder, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. 2017's been what a year. It's been, been a rich Pat year Short. already. It's a year, yeah. Listen, July, it's been... bonus, time, bonus time already. <laughs> thanks so much for being such a great company this morning. Pat Short, everybody. Thank you very much. Pixies there with the baser on second Captain Sunday. That one's especially for you, Ken. I know you went to see them last weekend. Where, so. where do you did you rank in the uh, age profile of the Pixies gig, Ken? I know that you were worried that you were going to be the oldest man there. No, right. Smack in the middle of the bell curve. <laughs> that's all right. That's where you want to be. You've just been listening to Pat Short revealing all the gory details of his previously unknown career as an up and coming county champion boxer. 
Mm. I'm expecting that one. Up and coming until he met his match in the Munster yeah. Championships. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the, yeah. the, the fact, uh, you know, the, the exact nature of his knockout in the Munster Championship shouldn't overshadow the fact that he was a county champion, yeah. you know, so... Bridget has tweeted into us to say just when you think nothing can surprise you on a Sunday morning second captains mix Shakira with Dunbelievables and a text from John Kane I was fortunate to see Pat on the West End in the Cripple of Inish Man outstanding performance and also in Garage he was world class should have got an Oscar I watched Garage again this week before chatting to Pat and I was just reminded of how brilliant he was in it mm. and how brilliant the movie was his story of his experience at Cannes it's almost like a full celebrity career in microcosm yeah. this sudden ascent to star of the festival and then by the end you're getting booted <laughs> go get your own taxi yeah, you've got to fight for your own taxi yeah exactly uh, The today Murph mm. Wimbledon final Roger Federer is going for eight Wimbledon titles which would be a record yeah. for a male player and I would argue that, that is bigger in the UK a bigger honour than knighthood yeah, well, Being I, mean, eight-time Wimbledon champion. Uh, I think uh, he's going to be incorporated in some way into the BBC logo. I mean, I think that that's the logical next step for how much they love Roger Federer and the BBC. I mean, I fully expect either the RF logo that you see on those peaked caps that he has uh, all of his acolytes wearing uh, or just a picture of Roger's beautiful hair itself. Yeah. It's going to appear in the four holes in the two Bs <laughs> of the BBC before too long. That's the only possible, uh, that's the, the the next logical step. I'm expecting the greatest collection of celebrities since Live Aid. Because if you watch the Wimbledon final every year, and you saw it at the ladies final yesterday, Woody Harrelson was there, Hilary Swank and a few others. Roger Federer going for eight titles. This is going to be I just hope David Beckham got his ticket sorted early in the week, to be honest with you, because it's kind of... I know, it is kind of ridiculous. I mean, it seemed for about 15 years here that it was only Cliff Richard. Basically, Cliff Richard showed up and then it was, you know, some members of the royal family and that was it then. But now it's, you know, it's if you're anyone, you got to be seen in, in Wimbledon. I see Pat Cash was giving rankings out of 100 today to both players, himself and his opponent, whatever his opponent's name is. And <laughs> he came to a total of, so there's 10 sections, each is marked out of 10. Yeah. And he came to a total of 96.5 out of 100 for Roger Federer. So Roger Federer is 3.5% off perfection as a sportsman. Where did he drop the points? And to? probably as a human being, forehand, backhand. So not a lot of points being subtracted uh, from any of these areas okay, Forehand, backhand What else have I got for you here Ken? Net play Half a mark taken off for net play Really? And uh, not wearing the blazer anymore He got deducted a mark for that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know why he's not wearing that blazer Alright that's pretty much it from us for this morning We've got to go We'll chat to you again next Sunday morning If you want to hear us broadcasting from our own studios Every day during the week You can do it on secondcaptains.com Marion Finucane is up next Thanks to Sheila Vale on sound Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produced Thanks very much Murph Thank you, Owen. Thank Thanks, you, Ken. Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank Thanks you. for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Second cap and first cap and whatever. <laughs> <laughs>